Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Timeless Wealth with Dirk and Dietz. I got Sean and Amy here today. Uh, today's topic is going to be about on expectations. Uh, so from managing investor expectations to expectations about the market, to expectations about portfolio return, to return on investments, all that jazz. And to kick it off right away, I wanted to talk about where we think some expectations come from or where would expectations come from, right? And Amy can definitely jump in here anytime she wants. But um, I think some expectations come from uh, from family discussions or even from uh, uh, family history, right? So growing up, you're sitting at a dinner table and you hear your uncle or your father talk, talking about historical returns. So so that so those discussions may shape your your expectations in the investor world or as investors. Um, historical returns can also shape expectations, right? So you can say, you know, an investor that's invested in the 70s or the 80s can say, oh, well, back in the 70s, back in the 80s, uh, when we when we executed this strategy, we got this return on on our investments. This this uh, this this was our ROI. So history can obviously shape your expectation. Uh, the other thing is entertainment. Um, personally, I really believe entertainment, movies, shows are can heavily condition. Uh, what people can expect. Um, an example of that is, for instance, uh, the show um, Wall Street Money Never Dies or even The Wolf of Wall Street. I'm pretty sure a lot of investors going going into the stock market or going into the investment world think that, you know, they're going to be the next uh, Wolf of Wall Street or in our case, Wolf of Bay Street. Um, so those are those are some really crucial, I'd say, sources of expectations. Another one, and Amy, you can attest to this one, is one way I think... Um, people develop expectations of the investment world or of money in general is your question that you once taught me about what initial memory do you have with money, right? So your first, a first interaction or a first integration with money, perhaps it was your first paycheck. Uh, maybe that shaped or conditioned the way you view money and you view investments or view finances. Um, perhaps a story that you heard around the dinner table about an uncle's big loss in, in, in the market. And this last question uh, I think is crucial uh, personally is because people tend to really latch on to the first memory they have of a certain phenomenon, right? It's almost like, like the dating culture, right? Like you almost, you latch on to that personality that you first <laughs> dated, you almost latch on to that for, for quite some time, right? Like it's always in the back of your head when you're, when you're meeting people, you always almost compare any person you date to that first individual that you first dated. Well, and it's a hugely important thing as, as an advisor that we truly understand the 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 preconceived notions, or you will, or, or the expectations that clients have when when they come to see us, because it really will shape their relationship with money. To your point, like if you think back to about your first experience with money, it could be so different for so many people. You know, I was one of those little saver bees where I had this pink, you know, plastic piggy bank that I stuffed my birthday money and things in, and you know, younger generations might not know this, but you would go to the bank and you'd have this little bank book where they would print the your balance. And I was always so proud to go up to the, you know, the big desk and have it printed and, and watch that number climb yeah. versus, you know, I have other friends who maybe got an allowance of some sort versus kids who didn't get an allowance and things like that it would really shape how, how you interact with money going forward. Yeah. And, and I think, I think understanding that psychology or maybe even understanding um, an individual's 
an individual's first interaction with money really gives you an insight as to what kind of investor they would be. Are they a saver? Do, do they want to invest so they can, you know, live a lavish lifestyle? Do they want to invest? But, but it really understands, gives you an understanding of that lifestyle that they're trying to attain and what kind of, uh, of, an, of a client or what kind of investor they would be. Well, I think, I think, sorry, that, that, that's critical, right? Mm -hmm. And if you look at what Amy described in her upbringing, well, that, that existed for folks that were born in the Depression. You know, you look at people that are in their 80s and in their 90s, God bless them. I mean, the great, the greatest generation. The greatest generation? The great, they, you know, they, they fought in World War II and preserved our freedom and did all, they, you yeah, know, but yeah. their formative years were in a very, let's say, dry environment, mm -hmm. you know, especially in the United States where there was drought and so on and so forth and in, in, the, in the prairies. And then they went into, and then Canada, it was a very, just a stressful time in terms of like a huge unemployment high interest rates. Mm -hmm. Back then, governments really didn't understand how to manage the economy like they can today and manage mm -hmm. the, the economic cycle. Mm -hmm. And then they went into you know, full-blown World War II. Oh, yeah. This is and then so they came out of that and went into the Korean World War and so on and so forth. So, yeah. you know, and, and, and that really formed, if you talk to somebody who's in their 80s about money, mm -hmm. they, they have a very, very different view than someone who was born in the 70s or someone that was born in the 80s. Right. Now, me, you know, I was born in the 70s, yeah. early 70s. I'm dating myself. But... I just remember in my formative years that money was very expensive. Yeah. Mortgage rates were mm -hmm. between 14 and 18%. And you, you, you know, re you remember that? I know they were that high. You remember that? I like, remember that very, very, that? very, okay. very much so. Because when, when I was, when remember. I was younger. Because for me, as long as I know, mortgage rates have been low. Like, you know, my, my nickname, I'm a 1990s uh, a child. So like, by the time I knew what interest rates are, I think they were much lower than that. Yeah. When I was younger, I mean, my nickname was Alex P. Keaton. And for those of my age, they would know from family ties, Alex P. Keaton was very much into politics and economics and so yeah, on and yeah. so forth. So I actually caught on to the, the value of money from, a, let's say, an economic standpoint at a relatively early age, probably when I was 13, 14. I started reading the business page of the Golden Mail religiously every day. And, and yeah. um, you know, so I, I really understood that when my parents went to get a mortgage, they were not really gaining ground on the principle of their property because rate, rates were so high. You're just lucky. You're happy to just make the payment mm -hmm. and cover the interest cost. And, you know, then I learned very quickly through, you know, my family background that, you know, my father was a, a teacher, then a principal, then he was a, a union, a union head for the Ontario Teachers Union and so forth. And uh, my mother was a kindergarten teacher. Um, but, you know, my my father's brothers were entrepreneurs. And mm -hmm. I, I knew very quickly, you know, the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial world where ultimately my two uncles did very, very well, but there were cycles where they weren't doing very well. My father always had a stable paycheck, mm -hmm. but in a rising cost environment, it really crested their thinking in terms of what they could spend money on and what they couldn't. Mm -hmm. And it's somewhat reminiscent, you know, where we are today. It's, it's, it's similar. It's not nearly as bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we're in that kind of environment today. And it's yeah. starting. But if, if you just unpack what Sean said there, it's, not just your first experience, but look at how it ties back to family history, right? So if I start to unpack, why was I such a saver bee? Well, I looked at what my family went through. You know, my grandfather, he used to tell the story of how he got their first home. He, they couldn't go into the bank and they wouldn't qualify for a mortgage. They had to get the local veterinarian, lent them some money, and it was an on-the-side mortgage, and they built their own home. They got boards, they pulled out nails, and they built their own house from scratch. And so having that instilled in that value of money mm -hmm. was instilled for generations and, and it can go both ways, right? So I took the way where I was going to be a saver and I understood the risks involved of potentially not having money, but then you can see other people where it might go the opposite way. They watch their parents maybe invest in a more risky 
type of investment and see how it doesn't work, they might become, you know, not the same as their parents. They might become complete opposite because they see what Where doesn't they become work. become more savers you than, than risk-takers. It. But it all yeah. kind of goes back. It links generations to generations, how it does pass along. So understanding, and it, we talk to our clients about this, is talking to their children. What stories and what things are you passing on to the next generation? So for our clients, they tend to be quite successful and uh, they've amassed a certain amount of wealth. Mm -hmm. It's not so much to say it's in my will, they get the money. It's how do you pass on that legacy of how you've gotten to that point? What were the best practices? So how do you pass on the rationale of accumulating and amassing? It. How do you well, instill those also, habits? It's also built under the, 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 you know, the guise of that money. Money, in, if money for many people that are our age or older is not viewed as a good thing or a beneficial thing, or it's, they're very proud of owning it. I mean, no one who's a, you know generationally wealthy ever goes like, well, I'm upset about it. They're not. But if you look at, for instance, you mentioned entertainment, and you brought yeah. up you know, Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, yeah. which was the far inferior byproduct of Wall Street, the real movie, yeah. with Gordon Gecko, Michael yeah. Douglas winning yeah. the Academy Award, yeah, yeah. with this famous speech, Greed is Good, yeah, right? And that's where we were conditioned, where we saw anyone who's rich was a gecko, Mm -hmm. who is out to screw the the average person to yeah. make themselves richer. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the day, and there's a number of different movies, like Wolf of Wall Street is a derivative of that. Yeah. True story, by the way, Jordan Belford is yeah. his name. And oh, I, I love the movie and the story is amazing. Well, to, to hear him actually talk about it first person is <laughs> yeah. quite I follow him on TikTok. Like, you, you I, can't I follow, help, but, you can't help but like the guy. You, in spite of what he did was absolutely wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but, man, he's paying it all back, by the way. Yeah. See something else. But, um, you know, and if you have John Madden or what is it, uh, uh, Madden, Madden Shoes? Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's born of that, that whole thing. Anyways, the point is that conditions you for how you communicate yeah. to your children, to your grandchildren right. about finances. Well, and that's and what I wanted to talk to you guys about. Like, I wanted to talk to you guys about and ask you questions and really drill, drill out some information from you guys in terms of like, uh, in terms of client expectations, like. I'm sure as financial advisors, you know, you, you probably call a client, suppose it's a brand new client, right? Like a prospect. One of the first, you know, you, you introduce yourself, you explain what you do, blah, 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 blah. One of the first questions they're going to ask you is right off the bat, okay, what's your ROI, mm -hmm. right? So there's obviously an underlying bias there, right? And when they mean that ROI, they're trying, they're specifically talking about hard percentage ROIs, mm -hmm. right? But you know, I think in my opinion, that cannot be the only measure for, for a return on, on a portfolio, right? So what, like, what can you guys tell me about that? Um, in terms of managing a client's expectations where does, does he or she only expect absolute percentage returns? And, and are those returns, for example, is a higher return always worth the higher, mm -hmm. uh, the higher risk that comes with it? Mm -hmm. Right. And it's a good question. So when, when clients immediately or, you know, or somebody you're talking to says, well, what rate of return can you get me? It's, well, yeah. we need to back it up a step because we got to understand what your risk tolerance is, right? We all talk about that and there's a form and a little checklist that we go through, but really understanding how much money do you need to, to fund your lifestyle? Yeah. You know, let's start there and figure out what you need. Because if, say, for example, we do a, a financial plan, it turns out you need a 20% rate of return to achieve your goals versus somebody else only needs a 4% rate of return. Well, those are two totally different ways to engage the market. One on the, the one end of the spectrum, you're going to have to be way more aggressive in the market and taking on way more risk versus the somebody who needs a lower rate of return. They don't have to be as risky. So understanding what their personal benchmark is versus 
you know, how the TSX do, how the NASDAQ do. That That's interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, these are just indices at the end of the day. They're indices, but it, what's more interesting to us is what is their number, right? What yeah. is your number to achieve whatever it is that your goals are? Because at the end of the day, the market is going to do what the market's going to do. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. when we talk about market, you know, traditionally we think of indices. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's a vast array of markets out there, private credit, fixed income, there's real estate, there's... Mm-hmm. Air rights. I mean, there's a market for everything in the world. Corn, right? Mm-hmm. So Did you say end, corn? Corn. There's a yeah. market for corn. It's actually a highly traded, heavily traded market <laughs> that's being disrupted by the Russian-Ukrainian war. So there, right. there's a whole bunch of interrelation in terms of all these markets. And at the end of the day, they're going to return what they're going to return, given the macro forces that are impeding upon them, right? And then you have you know company-specific things or maybe you know credit-specific things that maybe adjust the rate of return here and there. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Because for each each rate of return, you're, like for each asset class you invest in, yes, so there's an expected rate of return with a standard deviation. Like you asked about how do you measure ROI? There's a ton of ways to measure return on right. investment, right? There's standard deviation, sharp ratio, information ratio. I can go on and on and on. So yeah. at the end of, at the end of the day, that'll that'll set a person's head to spin. I think the average person wakes up and says, "Okay, what do I need?" How do I need it? And what's what can I accept and sleep well at night to get what I need to live forever? And then hopefully have intergenerational wealth that you can transfer to the next person. Right. So if, if I understand correctly, like sometimes the extra risk it um for a greater for a greater return, although you know, like and, and Amy, I've spoken to you about this before. Although, for example, a 20% or let's just be a little bit more realistic, maybe a 15% return is better than a 10% return. But that difference in the 5%, will it actually make a difference in that person's lifestyle, mm-hmm. right? Is it worth the risk? Yeah. Is it worth the risk uh, uh, to take that extra 5% um, when you, it's going to make no change in, in, you know, exactly. you know, in your lifestyle? Exactly. If you're not going to change your lifestyle, then taking on that additional risk, you have to ask your question, what if it doesn't work out? What if you go through a period where things are very disrupted and difficult and then you can't meet your goal because you took on too much risk? So really saying to yourself, what is it realistically that I am trying to achieve and what are my goals and what is my personal benchmark or my personal rate of return and target that? Yeah. And I think, I don't know, Sean, maybe you can agree with me here. I think that sounds a little bit more, uh, I don't want to say realistic, but a little bit more centric to the individual where... Instead of taking a, instead of taking like for example the TSX or, or the S&P or the Nasdaq as a um, as a benchmark or as the only benchmark, I think taking that personalized benchmark, like are you living up to the lifestyle or up to the standard that you want to live, mm-hmm. I think that is a more viable benchmark to measure um, returns for somebody, right? Mm-hmm. Like if they're not if they're not going to live any more extravagantly, why? Why put them? Why w- whether from the advisor to the client or even the client him or herself? Why expose yourself to that extra mm-hmm. risk mm-hmm. when it's going to be the same thing? Like well, I think, so I think let, greed plays plays a role here, and I think behavior and you know definitely plays a role here, right? Where you, people just want to amass as much as possible. Yeah. So let me let me cost. let me suggest this. So you yeah. know Warren Buffett always talked about when you look at the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio, he always said, look, at, you know, at the end of the day, him and him and Charlie Munger expect, and it, the people that work with him expect that portfolio to generate market returns. I put mm-hmm. quotations around that. Plus or minus one or two percent, year in, year out, year in, year out. Mm-hmm. 
But what Warren Buffett always said that made them special is they're always, they're always seeking what they call super normal returns, mm-hmm. where you find an asset that's so undervalued that the margin of safety is such that if you invest in it today, you can get compound returns of 20, mm-hmm. 30, 40% per year. But mm-hmm. he stresses they're very rare and very hard to find. And there's risk in them, right? So Ray Dalio supported that by saying, at the end of the day, the risk of seeking super normal returns is the risk you might not get them. Is what, sorry? The risk you might not, you might not achieve oh, okay. them, mm-hmm. sorry. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, and, then, and there's, a co- there's a corresponding downside risk to going after super normal returns. So as an individual, where you've reached a certain position in life or a situation in life financially, you have to ask the question, Let's say my run rate is a 6 to 7% compound rate of return, which is a very powerful compounding number on your asset base. You can imagine if you're 50 years old and you're worth $5 million, you compound at 7% per year. I don't have a calculator in front of me, but by the time you're 90, you're probably going to be worth $35, $40 million. Something to that magnitude. Mm-hmm. I'd have mm-hmm. to do the math, right. but, yeah, but yeah. it's, it's mm-hmm. something like that. However... If you want to, you know, and your downside risk is if you go for like a 5 to 7% compound rate of return and you make a mistake, you might only get three. Mm. But you're not wiped out. Achieving maybe a 12% rate of return and shifting your whole asset mix into classes that over time give you that rate of return, your downside might be a minus four or a minus five. Yeah. And a loss hurts you more than a gain helps you. And so at the end of the day, what happens is, in a long-winded way, is that, you know, getting that extra 2 or 3% in the short run or over five years might not make a meaningful difference in your lifestyle in terms of you buying more. Because once you reach a certain level, people tend to not buy more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you just live your life. Yeah. But if you were to lose a compound 3 or 4% over that five-year basis because you misallocated your risk, mm-hmm. that changes your lifestyle. It hurts you. And so at some point you go, it's not worth it. Or it shouldn't be worth it. Well, it's very psychologically painful too. Yeah, it is. And I think the other thing in today's world that is different, especially with social media, right? Our expectations are a lot different than they used to be, right? So I was at a conference the other week, and they said, "What was the golden era?" If you think back, what was the golden era? And everybody came to the the realization that when we talk about golden era, it was the fifties. The 50s seemed like the golden era. And then we started to unpack, well, why was it the golden era? And it was the the income, everybody was about the same, right? Their house sizes were about the same. Their incomes were about the same. Their cars were all very similar in terms of value. They all went on their, you know, their standard trips. Everyone was more in line in terms of their, their, their incomes and everything was more aligned. But if you look at today where the, the income gap's getting wider and wider, expectations have become more wide and wider, right? So it's 100%. You're, you're watching somebody on, you know, Facebook or Instagram and you're seeing the highlights of their life. And then it's, well, how do I get that? And I need that. And, and it's really, do you need that? And let's really get back to your own personal self. But it really is having an overall effect. On, I We see it with our clients, right? It's how do we get our kids the house? And then how do we get our kids the cottage? And they got to keep up with all these different things that are going on. It becomes a lot more pressure. But the question is, are they happier? And we could do a whole episode on social media. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean that's a, that's a yeah, whole conversation absolutely. in and of itself. I mean, and and I think one thing about social media is it's heavily filtered. Like, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, most of the most of the travel pictures that you see, um, p- people don't really travel that much. And obviously, it's heavily filtered. And ob- it's also a huge determinant of what you believe in terms of returns and stuff. Like, th- there's no doubt um, uh, it really conditions what you believe and mm-hmm. it really affects what you believe. But, the, but the media, the media doesn't focus on like no one ever. You never see like, you know, but here, I just I wanted to say, Sean, one more thing. Sorry to interrupt you, but I sure. did want to say like you were talking about five to seven or finding that. Uh, what did you call it again? Finding that one that's going to like really make you rich? Super normal returns. Super normal returns. Yeah. I think the reason, and I'll tell you, I was guilty of this. Like yeah. I was a victim to this is because you do hear stories about mm-hmm. people making super normal returns. So it's like, yeah. Yeah, I want my, you know, I want my uh, share of the pie, right? Yeah. yeah. But I think our problem is that when when people, just like social media, when they do have super normal returns, they'll post on it, you know, they'll post about it on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok. But People usually, when they suffer huge losses, they don't, <laughs> they don't post talk it. about that. <laughs> you know, it's like the whole Bitcoin thing. Like, sure, when Bitcoin exploded to nearly eighty thousand mm-hmm. USD, there was a ton of people that made a huge amount of money mm-hmm. off of Bitcoin. But I think, personally, I believe that was just the tip of the iceberg. I think a lot of people, as Bitcoin was growing. Because it grew, 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 and then it crashed after. I think a lot of people lost oh, also absolutely. a lot of money. And, and I think the losers were much more than the gainers and the people who actually amassed the wealth. Well, look, and, and that's the thing, right? That's why investing is, is so much behavioral, right? Oh, yeah. like, like, look, at the end of the day, if you, if you study daily returns on the S&P 500, and this, this would apply to the S&P TSX, the, you know, the German DAX, or pick a market, the Nikkei, yeah. whatever. But if you study market returns over longer periods of time, um, the simple reality is the market is up roughly 50.5% of the time on a daily basis, and yeah. it's down roughly 49.5% of the time. It's roughly that. Mm-hmm. But you aggregate that over a period of time, like for instance, over a month, well, basically 52.5% of the time months are up and the remainder is months are down. Yeah. But you aggregate that over a period of three years, it turns out that, you know, most rolling three-year periods, probably 60% of the time, 65% of the time, rolling three-year periods are up. So, yeah. Then based on that, on a rolling period over five years, it's almost always up. And mm-hmm. over a decade, it's 100% up every yeah. time mm-hmm. on a rolling basis, the S&P 500. But watching it day to day, it's like it's like basically drip torture. Yeah, right. Especially especially ne- nowadays. Like, and then what, you get we're, influenced. We're in June twenty twenty two, and yeah. May was terrible, and June doesn't look like it's going to be any better. And ten years from now, I hate to say it, because there's a lot of real awful things going on. It won't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just won't. Mm-hmm. People well, will be it, it, if they behave properly. They'll be people will be wealthier than they've ever been. Yeah. just like time eternal. Well, a good example of that is we often will hear clients say, we always make money in real estate. We always make money in real estate. Uh, funny. I was just about to ask you, but if well, you think, isn't it good if I just put in real estate? But if you think about it, it's investing in real estate and we won't disagree. It's, it's a great asset class. It's not the only asset class, but it's a good asset class. But your house isn't flashing a price every second of the day, right? So it's a lot easier to think long-term because you're not seeing that value go up and down. So you're not behaving or reacting to market well, behavior. because Well, the other thing too, Amy, is a lot of people have their head in, their cloud, in the clouds when it comes to real estate. It's true. They do. They don't fully cost their investment it's in real true. estate. No, not even close. They don't fully what, sorry? Cost, cost it. it. Oh, cost it. Okay. So let me ask you, when you, when you own real estate, you just buy real estate and just, that's it? 
No, you also have like taxes, you also right. have repairs, any maintenance on the Legal house. Legal costs, taxes. You, know, yeah. you got to mow the lawn, you, you got to fix the, lawn, the plumbing, yeah. you got to yeah. pay taxes, yeah. all that stuff, right? Those yeah. are all sunk costs. That should be costed in against the investment. Mm-hmm. People don't. They go, oh, I bought this property for X 25 years ago. I sold it for Y and what a great investment. Well, yes, it is, right? But like any investment, mm-hmm. including a business for that matter, you got to invest money and do it to make money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of time. And in real estate, I think what a lot of people forget is you also have to find decent tenants to actually live in that house, right? Yeah. Like, um, I know stories where, you know, tenants just absolutely trash, trash the house. <laughs> yeah, I've lived that dream. Yeah. Oh, you have. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like one of my buddies in Cold Lake in Alberta rented a house and, and he, when he, Told them that you know he gave them even four months up front like i need the house after four months he went in there the drywalls were completely torn off yeah. and it was terrible i'm like what so so here but here's the thing jalal and this is yeah. important about your personal benchmark i think first off th- th- there's no dispute that if you took you know allow time to work on your behalf mm-hmm. you'll be successful and if you're patient in investing you'll be successful mm-hmm. The more short-term you're thinking, the more you're prone to a recency bias, you're prone to a mistake, and that'll hurt you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, and the last thing I wanted to, talking about um, uh, expectations and, and, compound, and compounding and everything, one last thing I wanted to touch upon is, and maybe you guys can shed light on this, um, I think if, if a goal is to amass wealth, I think a lot of families or a lot of parents also forget that even if you're one of your main goals is to pass on a good amount of wealth to your kids, I think they're forgetting to have those conversations with their children, mm-hmm. right? Uh, obviously, we've heard many times where uh, generation one, for example, the first generation that amassed, amassed the wealth and the second generation either blew it or they were just, you can say, uh, custodians of, uh, you know, of the wealth. I think having, can you guys touch upon the, the types of conversations or what what kinds of conversations parents should have with their children in order to actually preserve that uh, that that family uh, that family wealth from one generation to the next to the next whether whether in, in the context of business or just in the context of uh, of personal wealth well, well first I would say a lot of people um, business owners included uh, and our clients some of them don't have wills. Not only will, no wills, no powers of attorney, but that's only one part of the equation. That's only like if you're passing on, the money goes to the next one. It, that Those conversations about those documents, about how the, their philosophy around money, their expectation. We've often seen clients where all of a sudden they inherit an amount and it'll go one of two ways. They're either completely frozen because they don't know what their parents would have wanted them to do. And there's a whole lot of guilt associated with that. Yeah. Or we'll see they, they're not sure what to do with it. And they just kind of go out and it gets spent very, very quickly. And it's the, the wealth disappears very, very quickly. So they don't pass down like the, the, the rationale or the understanding of how to, how to manage the money or what to even do with the money. So it's yeah. having those kind of conversations, yeah. which, again, people don't want to talk about their death or getting older. And it's one of those things like we'll do it later but it's so so important in terms of preserving wealth otherwise it's that 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 point where it does switch it can be a huge wealth destructor to be clear to be clear when someone inherits money Mm -hmm. of any you know magnitude Mm -hmm. it's a binary outcome Mm -hmm. it either serves for massive good within the family that inherits it or it can rip them apart Mm mm-hmm and there's no middle ground, none. Mm. So these conversations that you have to have with your beneficiaries, 
they have to impart, you have to impart all these things about what it took to earn it, mm -hmm. the values behind it, how you want the people that are going to inherit your money to enjoy it and spend it and support them and train them. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, depending on the nature of success of, of your, your children mm -hmm. or your beneficiaries, and let's face it, there's there could be a, a wide disparity in terms of how children have done. And by the way, we love them all, mm -hmm. right? My mm -hmm. children, I have a son who's special needs. Mm -hmm. He's going to have a very different life trajectory than my daughter. Mm -hmm. Plain and simple. Mm -hmm. They both need to understand that once my wife and I are no longer here, the nature of how they're going to inherit their money and how it came to be and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately it's the values that you impart on them Absolutely. that's going to help them mm -hmm. Absolutely. as they go yeah. forward. And it's so, so important. Like one, one of the things we're so passionate about is we don't want any of our clients to, to die intestate, meaning you don't have a will. Mm -hmm. We don't want any of our clients to not have powers of attorney of finance Save or our health. Anybody to well, die imagine intestate. being in the hospital and we've seen this firsthand. Yeah. You're in the hospital. You, do you have any examples of that? Clients like, in the hospital hasn't prepared. They're literally laying in the hospital with lawyers by their side, trying to organize things in their final moments. That's if they get that opportunity. Some, it happens so fast. They don't have have that opportunity the, the way the That's way terrible. to describe when it on your deathbed the last thing you're you, you know you want to enjoy the last few moments with your loved ones i think the last thing you want to think about is lawyers and and writing up mm -hmm. legal terminology and, and but the and speed of which it turns yeah it, it is that fast mm -hmm. and the way i like i'd akin this to or, or liken this to picture yourself drinking out of a garden hose one nice summer day yeah. you're drinking out of garden garden hose and then in an instant it turns and you're drinking out of a fire hose mm -hmm. Jeez, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what it's like. Mm -hmm. And it's and you cannot turn it off. It's in once it goes, it's going. You can't go back in time. Well, yeah. and also the reminder of yes, when you pass on, but also people are living a lot longer today, right? So yeah. there's more of a chance where you might become incapacitated, meaning you just can't make the decisions financially for yourself around your health or around your investments. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, and usually it might be the children they're they're thrown into here's mom and dad's portfolio and well let me let me out. add one more on that so in a lot of cases families have two children that's a little bit of an easier easier math mm -hmm. equation to manage mm -hmm. in terms of you know conveying values and how the money's going to transition but i know a lot of families that have three four five kids yeah mm -hmm. uh, i'm from uh, a family of five children so okay yeah. so you've taken stats and you know over your time i know amy has <clears throat> and i'm very bad at it but i understand the concept of a permutation and a combination mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the more people you put into the mix mm -hmm. the more variability of outcomes that can occur 100 mm percent. -hmm. and a lot of people expect that when they pass on you know bobby timmy sally jimmy and ron are all going to get along as it relates to the estate <laughs> happening not happening that doesn't not happen because so of the whole concept of you know chaos <laughs> right and especially when money's put into the situation especially when money right yeah. so yeah. so at the end of the day you know the more children you have it makes it just so much more imperative yeah to make sure mm -hmm. that the conversation pre-planning and and really pre-planning whether it's business or even personal wealth transitions mm -hmm. is extremely crucial yeah um i think and i you know, and you can attest to this, but I think it's really important to start the conversation early because, I mean, uh, as you said, people, you never know, obviously, when any, when, you never know when anyone's going to die um, or even just randomly become incapacitated. And mm -hmm. you can't have, you can't structure uh, whoever's going to, wh whoever are, is going to be the beneficiary or whoever are going to be the beneficiaries. You can't structure it 
in a way you want if you're incapacitated, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I think it's well, the earlier the better and updating it, even if you do it 20 years before you retire, 15 years out of retire, there's no wrong with updating it once a year, once so, a couple yeah. years. So right? I'm sitting here, Yeah. I'm listening to this podcast and I realize, okay, you know, my wife and I, we have five kids. I'm worth whatever I'm worth. Yeah. And I'm at position zero. Like, let's say question one part A. Mm -hmm. What's the first step that I take? Talk to your advisor. Sit down and Which say, advisor do I talk to? In terms of? Just moving forward, period, on this. So where I think this is different is our clients come to us. We're financial advisors, but right. oftentimes lawyers are more transactional. Your accountants are more transactional. We're looking at all the different moving pieces. And to circle it back into expectations is this end of life or, or healthcare you know, perspective is lining up all of those expectations. That's the key right there that, you know, you want to talk to us. Mm -hmm. We can start the conversation. We can help, you know, not shape your thinking. We want to listen to you. We mm -hmm. want to help guide you and we want to help reinforce the importance of it and, 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 and help take you through the steps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy process. It's, it's, it's easier than people think. But you have to go through the steps. There's just so it, many things yeah. that are linked. And so you just want to align the expectations of all the different moving parts so Absolutely. that you've got a plan. Of it takes some time, but once you're, once you're through it, you're going to feel pretty good yeah. you did it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. I just wanted to conclude then. Um, I think, you know, I think if there's one thing I want our listeners to, um, uh, to get out of this podcast is that while absolute percentage and, and absolute returns are crucial, I think the returns... Uh, being measured against your lifestyle, I think those are either as important or even a little bit more important. Um, I'll say, I'll say again, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think sometimes that extra percentage that you're going to get out of the extra exposure of risk is just not worth it at the end in comparison to your, uh, uh, to the lifestyle. Like, is it really going to change your lifestyle that much? Right. Um, if you're buying, like for example, that extra five percent, if you have a five hundred thousand dollar yacht, are you that extra five percent isn't going to give you like that five million dollar yacht? It's not. You're still going to probably stay with the same yacht. You know, I, I got a you funny, I, mean? I got so a funny like, story. Is, I got it, a, is it worth that extra? I don't know. Joel, I, I, I got don't a short, a I got a short funny story to <laughs> yeah. say because I was driving with my daughter to the grocery store the other day. Yeah. And you know, we're pulling on into the you know the, you know the street intersection, and there's this Lamborghini Countach. Oh, one of my okay. favorite lines, right? by the way. And all Love I looked, I looked at that thing and I went, what an annoying car. What? <laughs> and then I saw it drive off the, the you know, the, the stoplight turned green and it made this annoying noise yeah. and it buzzed right. And I'm like, what? It, it looked uncomfortable. It looked stupid. Don't and I that. like, like I could, I could win $200 million. I'm never buying one of those stupid things. Mm -hmm. So that's my perspective, right? Yeah. Now, when I was your age, Jalal, yeah. I'd be like, cool car man <laughs> but now i'm in my pickup truck and i'm like that thing's a jerk <laughs> so that you know yeah if i got that extra return it ain't going to a lamborghini <laughs> no i get it it's just the, the kuntosh is one of my favorite that's why, that's why it was funny you know but no i i can see that i can see when i'm uh when i'm 60 years old sean i think i'll think like that i'm kidding you know? touche when i'm 60 i'll think that way too <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks a lot for your um, uh, for your inputs. And um, anything else you guys want to add? Or no, nope. see, right. see you next time. Well, thanks, listeners, and uh, hopefully you guys tune in for the next episode. Ciao.